Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm glad you joined us for today's podcast. We're going through a special series called Simply by Grace, the book. When I wrote Simply by Grace, I never dreamed it would have such an impact and be translated into a dozen languages with more in the works. It's published in English by Kriegel, and you can get the book at our website, gracelife.org, or on Amazon, or wherever you buy your paperback or digital books. Like a lot of folks, you might want to buy a bunch and hand them out to people who need a better understanding of God's amazing grace. Grace Life ministers around the United States and the world sharing the gospel of grace with unbelievers and the grace of the gospel with believers. Our ministry is supported by folks just like you, and that too can be done on our website, gracelife.org. What we'll do now is read a chapter of Simply by Grace and follow that with an interview on the topic of that chapter with someone who's going to give further insights about that aspect of God's grace. So, if you're ready, we'll dive into the book. Chapter 8. Grace and Good Works So far, we've focused our discussion on what is required to obtain eternal life, to keep eternal life, and to be sure you have eternal life. According to grace, our human effort, good works, and sincere commitments are irrelevant to receiving eternal life because it all depends on God's effort, His good works, and His commitments. In other words, He did it all. It is simply by His grace. We saw that Romans 3.20 says, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And Romans 4, 4-5 says, Faith, not works, is the only requirement for salvation. Quote, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So when it comes to salvation, good works are a bad idea. But if we cannot be saved by the works or good things that we do, how do good works fit in? We know the Bible says a lot about doing good works and godly living. How are they important? Good works are a good idea. Good works are not a requirement for salvation. They are to be a result of salvation. It is crucial to keep this order in mind. The experience of God's saving grace should always result in good works. When we have experienced the free gift of salvation, we learn to live a life that is pleasing to God. Grace guides us into godliness, not the other way around. Titus 2, 11-12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Because works are not necessary for salvation, we must not conclude that they are not important to God. Good works after salvation are a good idea because they are God's idea. Here's why good works are important. Good works are God's purpose. We looked at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. But the next verse tells us God's purpose in our salvation. Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
It is God's preordained purpose that we who have believed live according to good works. That is why he made us new creations in Jesus Christ. Good works are commanded by God. The Bible does command many good works, too many to cite. Uh, Love one another should be the first one that comes to mind. But they are commands to Christians in light of salvation, not to unbelievers as conditions for salvation. To know that God commands these things should be enough to see their importance and obey. Good works glorify God. To glorify God is to give Him what He is due, to honor Him, to magnify Him. When Jesus did a good work or a miracle, the Bible often says that the people glorified God. When we do good works, we glorify God or cause others to glorify God. Good works help believers and unbelievers. This is obvious, but must be said. Our good works can feed the hungry, help the sick, or show mercy to those in need. So while good works are never a requirement for salvation, they are an expected result of salvation. They are not a condition for salvation, but a consequence of salvation. Having said that, we must be careful in thinking we can quantify someone's good works in a measurable or verifiable way. After all, non-Christians and even atheists do good works, and we, and what we might assume is a good work done by a Christian might not be considered so by God. Things that appear to be good works can come from bad motives. The Motivation to Do Good Works Those who understand and experience God's grace have the greatest motivation to do good works as they seek to please God. The biblical motivation for good works is not to gain salvation or to stay out of hell, but to show love and gratitude toward the God who gave His Son so that we could have the free gift of eternal life. Grace is the purest motivation for a life of good works. When we look at some of Paul's epistles, we see that his admonitions to good conduct follow his explanations about the blessings we have in Christ through grace. This is most evident in Romans, where, before our practical conduct is even discussed, we read 11 chapters about how God has blessed us. Paul waits until chapter 12, verse 1 to tell us how we can respond to grace. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The word therefore in, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, indicates that Paul is drawing a general conclusion from all his theological teaching about grace in chapters 1 through 11. In other words, since we are saved, sanctified, secured, and selected by God's grace, here is how we can respond, by offering ourselves totally to Him in order to serve Him. But what does that mean? In his exhortations to godly conduct, Paul explains in chapters 12-16 through of Romans what it means to serve God sacrificially. The sequence in Romans is also found in other epistles. God's blessings prompt good behavior. Theological truth informs practical conduct. Belief leads to behavior. Grace motivates graceful living. We see this progression in Galatians 1 through 4, and then in 5 through 6, and then in Ephesians 1 through 3, and then in 4 through 6, and Colossians 1 and 2, and then in 3 and 4, where Paul is teaching that works flow out of salvation. Works are not required before salvation. Only two religions. 
By now, you should understand what makes grace so simple and amazing, and why biblical Christianity is different from all the other religions of the world. All other religions require something that needs to be done or followed before one can be saved or enjoy an eternal reward in the afterlife. Buddhism teaches that one must follow the Noble Eightfold Path. Islam teaches that one must keep the five pillars and lead a righteous life. Hinduism teaches that one must adhere to the four yogas. Sikhism teaches that one must follow his own path and lead a disciplined life. Judaism teaches that one must live a moral life according to the Torah. Mormonism teaches that one must be baptized and obey laws and ordinances. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that one must serve and obey Jehovah. Roman Catholicism teaches that one must keep the seven sacraments. Legalistic Protestantism teaches that one must submit to God and obey the Bible. Liberal Protestantism teaches that one must do good to others. While every other religion says do, Christianity says done. Grace is God's doing everything necessary for our salvation so that we don't have to do anything to be saved. It has been done by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. We can do nothing to add to that. Can good works prove salvation? Some who would agree that we are saved through faith alone and not by works nevertheless teach that works are necessary to prove that salvation is genuine. Instead of front-loading the gospel with works, they backload it. One popular saying is, quote, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Unquote. While this may sound good at first, or on closer examination, it is a nonsensical and contradictory statement because it says faith must be alone, but never alone. There is every reason to expect that those who have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior and are consequently born into God's family, will experience a changed life to some degree. Some want to see this changed life, sometimes called fruit or evidence, as proof that a person is saved. But if fruit proves salvation, then the converse is true. If there is no fruit or good works, then there is no salvation. In this view, good works would prove or disprove one's eternal salvation. Some biblical passages are even used to contend that works can prove or disprove one's eternal salvation. Probably the most common are James 2, verses 14 through 26, and John 15, 6, and Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. But James is writing to Christians about the usefulness of their faith, not its genuineness. We'll look more at that passage later. Likewise, in John 15, 6, Jesus is talking about fruitless believers and compares them to branches that are burned. In other words, of not much use. Matthew 7, 15-20 warns against false prophets, not believers in general, who can be evaluated on the basis of their evil deeds or heretical teaching, not on an absence of works in general. There is no passage of Scripture that claims works can prove salvation. In fact, there are many problems with trying to use works to prove salvation, or the lack of works to disprove salvation. Consider the following facts. Good works can characterize non-Christians. Works in and of themselves cannot prove that anyone is eternally saved. Those who have not believed in Christ will often do good things. Good deeds are, in fact, essential to most non-Christian religions. Sometimes the outward morality of non-Christians exceeds that of established Christians. Good works can be hard to define. 
Though we might define a good work as something done by a Christian through the Spirit and for the Lord, how can we always know when that's true? It's hard to imagine even a single day when a Christian, or a non-Christian for that matter, would not do something good, such as provide for a family or hold a door open for someone. How can we know when such things are done through the Spirit and for the Lord, especially if they can be done by non-Christians? Good works are relative. While a person's behavior may seem improper, it could actually demonstrate progress in that person's Christian growth. A man slips with a curse word that startles other believers, but those believers don't know that before his conversion, curse words flowed freely. The amount of fruit must be considered in the context of one's total past life, a difficult thing to do. Further, good works could be overlooked in a person's life if an obvious sin draws attention. Good works can be passive in nature. The fruit of salvation is not always what we do, but often what we do not do. As a Christian, one may no longer get drunk or may refrain from yelling at an inconsiderate motorist. This fruit of the Spirit, self-control, may not be detected by others because of its passive nature. Good works can be unseen. In Matthew 6, 1-6, Jesus told his followers to give and pray in secret rather than publicly. A person who never prays in a group may breathe a prayer while driving, and no one will ever know. Another may not attend church but give regularly to a Christian charity. These are works that go unobserved by others. Good works can be deceptive. Since we cannot know a person's motives, a seeming good work could be done for the wrong reason. A woman might give money to a church to impress others. A man might volunteer to work with church children only to wait for an opportunity to abuse them sexually. These are not actually good works at all. Motives are difficult to discern even for the doer, but God knows each person's heart. Good works can be inconsistent. The Bible allows the possibility of believers who begin well but fall away from their walk with the Lord or fall into sin. If a Christian man or woman shows evidence of a changed life but later falls away, at what point in his or her life do we examine that person to prove or disprove his or her salvation? If there can be lapses in good works, how long does the lapse continue before one is judged as never saved? Nowhere does the Bible teach that fruit or good works can prove one's eternal salvation. Since the fruit of good works is not easily discerned or quantified, it cannot be reliable proof of salvation. The subjective nature of measuring one's fruit creates the impossibility of knowing objectively whether one is saved. The amount of fruit necessary to please one Christian fruit inspector may not please the next fruit inspector. While good works can be corroborating evidence for one's faith in Christ, they are not sufficient to prove or disprove it. Only faith in God's promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ guarantees and proves our salvation. But isn't faith without works dead? Absolutely, faith without works is dead. James 2.17 says so. But what does that mean? The interpretation of James 2 verses 14 through 26 has long been controversial and remains so today. Does this passage teach that those who profess faith but have no works are not really saved? Wouldn't this contradict what we've seen in Romans 3 through 4? or Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, about salvation through faith alone and not by works? 
In interpreting this passage, we must begin with some important observation. First, there is every indication that the readers of James were Christians. They were born from above, James 1.18, professed faith in Christ, chapter 2, verse 1, and are called brethren in chapters 1, verse 2, and verse 19, chapter 2, verses 1 and 14, chapter 3, 1, 4, 11, 5, 7, and 10, 12, 19. So it would seem contradictory for James to tell some of them that they were not really saved. Second, the context is bracketed by the theme of judgment, chapter 2, verse 13, and chapter 3, verse 1. The only judgment that Christians face is the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment to see if a person should go to heaven or hell. It is a judgment based on the believer's works or lack of works for the sake of rewards or penalty. Third, the salvation in mind is not salvation from hell. The word save used here is often used of those who are delivered from some undesirable fate. James uses this word in chapter 1 verse 21 and chapter 5 verse 15 and in 520 for a Christian's deliverance from some undesirable fate. So he could not be referring to eternal salvation. It is used in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, to refer to a Christian delivered from an undesirable fate at the judgment seat of Christ, such as having his works burned and losing his reward. The prophet James speaks of is not salvation, but advantages accrued in this life and the next. So James is not concerned with the reality of his reader's faith, but with the quality. Compare chapter 1, verse 3. And 6, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 5, verse 15. And usefulness. Compare chapter 1, verse 12 and 26, chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, and verse 20 of their faith. James is not saying faithful manifests itself in works, but that without works, faith is useless or unprofitable in this life and at the judgment seat of Christ. James' main concern is that his readers become quote, doers of the word, unquote, chapter 1, verse 22, which is the same as being a doer of the work, because they will be blessed in what they do, chapter 1, verse 25. Faith that perseveres in trials, for example, earns a reward from God, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Faith that is merciful to others receives God's mercy at the judgment seat of Christ, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. But faith that does not work is useless towards these blessings and useless in helping others. The word dead should be understood as useless or unprofitable rather than non-existent. In chapter 2, verse 19, the faith of demons also shows the uselessness of faith without works. The demon's faith could not save them anyway because it's only faith in monotheism, the belief that there's only one God, not in Jesus Christ. James' point in mentioning demons' belief is to argue that they only tremble, and that because they only tremble, they do no good works to alleviate a fearful judgment. Thus, their faith is useless to them. When James speaks of being justified by works, in chapter 2, verse 21, 24, and 25, he is not speaking of the imputed justification that saves us eternally, as Paul uses the term. That would be a contradiction in the Bible. James is speaking of a vindication before other people. Paul even recognizes this use of the word justify in Romans 4.2 when he speaks of Abraham's vindication before men. There are two kinds of justification in the Bible. One concerns practical righteousness that vindicates us before people. 
The other concerns judicial righteousness that vindicates us before God. James obviously uses the practical sense because Abraham was judicially justified in Genesis 15, 6. According to James 2, verse 23, before he offered Isaac to God in Genesis 22, as you see in James 2, verse 21. His vindication by others is seen when they call him, quote, the friend of God, unquote, in chapter 2, verse 23. Thus, Abraham's faith was, quote, made perfect, unquote, or mature by his demonstration of his faith, chapter 2, verse 22. In 2.26, James is not saying that faith must result in works, but that works makes faith come alive or useful, just as the Spirit makes the body useful. The issue is not whether faith exists in a person, but how faith becomes profitable or useful to a Christian. This passage in James, then, is written to Christians to encourage them to do good works, which will make their faith mature and profitable to them and to others. There is no contradiction between James and Paul. When Paul speaks of justification through faith alone, he is speaking of judicial righteousness before God. When James speaks of justification by faith that works, he is speaking of a practical righteousness displayed before other people. In Romans chapters 3 through 5, Paul is discussing how to obtain a new life in Christ. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James is discussing how to make that new life profitable. If this passage is taken to mean that one must demonstrate a real salvation through works, then works unavoidably becomes necessary for salvation, a contradiction of salvation by grace. Further, there is no mention of criteria for exactly what kind or how much work it takes to verify salvation, opening the door to subjectivism and undermining the objective basis of assurance, the promise of God's word that all who believe in Christ's work will be saved. But what about Uncle Joe? Everyone knows a man or woman who calls himself or herself a Christian but doesn't act like one. Christians struggle with how to think about these folks who do not show the works or lifestyle that we think they should. Here are some possibilities that might explain these folks. They lost their salvation. We reject this one quickly because of the clear teaching that eternal salvation is eternal and secure. For those who profess to be born-again Christians but fall short of the expected Christian lifestyle, other options explain their behavior more biblically from a grace perspective. They were never truly saved. Perhaps they never understood the facts of the gospel message about the work of Christ on the cross on their behalf, or perhaps they did not understand the response of faith required of them. They may have made some kind of decision or prayed a prayer, but it was based on either false information, peer pressure, or an emotional impulse instead of biblical grounds. They have not believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. They are Christians who have yet to mature in their Christian walk. One would expect new Christians to experience a period of growth, out of old habits and worldly tendencies and into a new lifestyle. The length of this growth period may vary, but it is expected that a discernible level of Christian maturity should develop. They are Christians who are struggling with sin. Some Christians, because of their past habits, addictions, or personality, struggle with the enticements of specific sins, and they sometimes fail. These people with 
poor behavior may have been Christians for a long time and even seen some growth and change in other areas of their lives. A besetting sin, however, has enslaved them before salvation, perhaps from youth. They find it difficult to break the powerful hold it has on some area of their lives. This could be true of those who were addicted to alcohol, for example, or drugs, or sex. They are backslidden Christians. These are true believers who have chosen to live in a worldly way. Some might deny this possibility if the person remains in sin very long. Still, most admit that Christians can make sinful choices and live self-centered lives. The answer for any of these categories of people lies in the grace of God. They must understand the gospel of grace, grow in it, avail themselves of the Holy Spirit's power given to them, or repent and find the grace of God's forgiveness and restoration. In the end, only God, and perhaps the people in question, knows for sure whether they who call themselves Christians but don't act like it are truly saved. Works are not a reliable measure. All we can really do is make sure they understand the gospel and the grace of God it represents, and exhort or instruct them in righteousness. If they are true believers, they will have to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for how they lived their lives. Good works are not at all required to experience God's saving grace, but good works are a natural result of that grace. They are essential to a healthy Christian experience. They make our faith in Jesus Christ useful to others and useful in our final accounting to God for how we used our lives. But we must be careful in thinking we can easily determine or measure those works in another person's life. That is best left up to God. As we grow in our appreciation of God's grace and as we teach the greatness of His grace, we and others will grow in good works. As believers, we should live godly lives and devote ourselves to good works. But as we will see later, we cannot do that in our own power. Review Questions 1. Explain the difference between the role of good works in salvation and in the Christian life. 2. Why can't good works prove that someone is saved? 3. How would you respond to someone who claims that James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26 shows that works are necessary to prove our salvation? 4. How can you explain the behavior of someone who claims to be a Christian but does not live like one? To talk more about uh, grace and works, it's our privilege today to talk with Fred Librand, and Fred's an old friend, and uh, we've done a lot of ministry together. Fred, as uh, we went, I think I met you first at Dallas Theological Seminary, and then we uh, worked on the Free Grace Alliance together. Fred was director of the Free Grace Alliance for a while. He's pastored a number of churches, and he's written a number of books, and one of the books has to do with our topic today specifically. So. I think he has some insights to share with us. What else do you want us to know about you? You're busy. You got your fingers in a number of different things. Yeah, we got, uh, I've got, uh, eight grandchildren. The oldest is four. So seven of them are in diapers. So that's a challenge. Uh, I like to tell people, Charlie, I have not ADHD, but ADOS. 
the new designation that stands for attention deficit. Oh, squirrel. <laughs> and so yeah. um, uh, stay involved with a lot of things. I've, I've, uh, I've got a, a whole ministry of homeschooling stuff. We've got a book coming out this fall about it. And um, uh, do, you know, work and coaching, work with uh, married couples and uh, uh, teach and are heading up a men's ministry at our church is, you know, trying to stay uh, faithful and uh, maybe uh, throw a few good works out there if God enables. So good segue. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to start the discussion with something that we don't often discuss when we talk about good works is what, is a good work. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a frustrating question in a way because it's like it's one of those things you know that we all recognize but we don't know how to define it. Um, so yeah, I like the way you describe it. You know, you kind of in passing mentioned the definition is pretty much a work done uh, through the Spirit unto the Lord. So there's this relationship of being empowered by the Spirit. But the idea has something to do with God's glory, following his will, doing his will. We, we could also throw out there, they're certainly contrasted with bad works. So doing evil and bad things is contrasted with good. But then inside of good works, we got the problem of there are what I'd call live works and dead works that can both be good. So Hebrews you know, 6.1 yeah. talks about repentance from dead works. Well, they're good works you're trying to do, but they're dead because they didn't come out of life. Uh, connection to God. Isn't that where you think motivation comes in? We have to look at some someone's motivation, which we can't see. Yeah, that's a that's a heck of a problem. Or you know, they claim motivation. What one of my favorite things to point out to everybody that likes to say, well, you can look at someone's work and judge them, is to think about uh, the night the Lord was betrayed when He comes in and says, "One of you will betray me." Well, our in our day, people would say. All the apostles should have said, ha, is Judas. (laughs) But when you read the passage, they're all asking, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? And so it was not apparent that Judas, a deceiver, was um, not doing good works and doing the things the Lord wanted. And so uh, his motives were clearly amiss. And yet his actions betrayed, you know, betrayed or tried to display that he was one of the good guys. That's a good point. And it makes it almost impossible then to judge someone's salvation by their, what we call good works, because we don't know what their motives are, um, which is one of the whole problems with this issue. Well, and, and we also don't know if they're saved. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That, that's where we need to yes. start. Yeah. So if a lost person, I used to, I, when I was working on the dissertation, I, I was at Dallas seminary doing research and I would, you know, take breaks by hanging out in the lounge or the lunchroom. And I'd ask these students who are all doing theology, I'd say, so you can't look out there at someone and tell whether they're saved by what they're doing, right? But they're doing good. They say, oh no, because they could be trusting in their work. I said, right. So why do you think you can judge that they're lost by their lack of works? And they would all say, ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> Because it's not the kind of thing that we're used to thinking about. We just are busy wanting to rush ahead and have a simple formula to explain reality to ourselves instead of realizing, gosh, if I as a fallen human can't look at someone's work and judge their destiny, I guess that's going to have to be God's problem, which yeah. I think is where the scripture lands. 
That's right. Exactly right. And that's why I think all these discussions about good works and how to prove someone's salvation are a little bit uh, futile if we don't first understand what a good work is. Um, so when we're talking to, you know, people always want to mix works into the gospel, whether at the beginning or at the end of what we call front loading, back loading the gospel. Uh, but good works are important, you would agree. And how do you explain that good works are important? for example, to an unbeliever in reference in relationship to the gospel and then to a believer. Yeah. Um, it gets a little tricky, uh, in that, you know, when I talk to unbelievers, I don't bring up them doing good works and, and why that's going to be important any more than I might talk about prayer and church membership and all of that. There's so much about Christianity that's really important discipleship, et cetera. Because what I'm dealing with is a person that has a, a really focused issue. They are not in the kingdom of light. They have not embraced the Savior. They are on a road, a destiny to um, a perdition and destruction. And so the message I give them, I, you know, I think the message we're to give them is one, you know, that Christ died for them, was buried and raised again. And if they believe in him, uh, they receive this forgiveness, eternal life, adoption into the family of God. I was trying to think of an analogy of this. It's like I told Jody, if I met a, a, a wild man, a feral man out in the woods and invited him to, I want you to come live in the city, you know, convert and we have community and we'll take care of you and we're going to help you and life will be great. Uh, come join humankind. I don't say now before you do that, we do have some table manners you're going to have to really commit to, you know, because that's not the issue. Uh -huh. And so I'd say works and good works and sanctification, all those things belong to a child of God. And they're a really important issue for a child of God. But I, I wouldn't, in the context of sharing the gospel, confuse the conversation that way, because it's not by works we've done, right? But by his grace through faith. The works come after salvation. I that's a good analogy that you use. I always use the analogy of fishing since I'm a fisherman. Uh, I don't catch the fish clean. I catch them slimy and smelly, and then I clean them up. Um, exactly. I like it. Yeah. So for a believer, why are works important? Well, <laughs> uh, uh, they, um, you know, you, you read um, uh, Titus in particular, you know, three times in there, right at the end, especially. It's uh, we're to be a people zealous for good works. Um, some, some of the nature of that good works is, uh, connected to our eternal rewards, our connection to the Lord. Um, it's, it's God's will. It's our calling. It is, um, uh, really, it's almost like the, the water in which we should be swimming back to your fish analogy analogy. It's not that we should really notice and be obsessed with good works, but our lives and our ministry and all should be marked by that sort of thing, not the bad, but the good. So it's just a part and parcel of what it means to abide in Christ, to walk with them, to mature in the faith. I mean, you know, what else would you expect except someone who's dependent on the spirit, is embracing truth, is believing it, to take actions that display something of the character of Christ in this world? So works have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. That was Christ's work. Um, but good works are important to the believer. Absolutely. The question I'm sometimes asked, probably you've heard it before also, is does every Christian do good works? How do you answer that? 
Uh, well, the, you know, the way I've said it is, well, it's normal. I don't know if I'd call it necessary. It depends, again, how you define it. But, you know, you, you, you look at this conversation and it's like, uh, are you describing that Christians can not sin? And no one would say that. Of course, we can sin. And then it gets into this confusing uh, discussion about, well, works are guaranteed, but they're not. It's kind of what I was saying to you. Um, uh, earlier, when we were uh, testing all the technology. You know, we know that if you walk in the spirit, walk in the light, walk in the spirit, there are a lot of things that happen. Blood cleanses you, et cetera. But you'll do good works because that's fruit of the spirit type stuff. So if you walk in the spirit, I think you're guaranteed to do good works. John 15 will say the same thing. But if you're saved, that doesn't guarantee you'll walk in the spirit. Because we know for a fact you can quench, grieve, resist, walk in the flesh, uh, do things in your own might, your own strength, rebel against God. You can do all of that. So to make a connection of I'm saved, therefore it guarantees I'll do good works, is to miss the human responsibility uh, of a child to the father. And so I think, yeah, we can do good works, and yes, we cannot do good works, and I think God's going to be the one that gets to sort that out rather than me playing the role of what we used to call the junior Holy Spirit, you know, <laughs> to, <laughs> to go around and, and, uh, and assess all of that. Because well, I really, I really like that distinction that a person uh, will, who walks in the spirit will do good works, but it's not guaranteed that every believer will walk in the spirit, but it's, it's, sometimes inconceivable to me that someone who believes in Christ as savior would not do good works, but how do we ever prove that? We don't, we have to be with them 24 seven. We have to know every thought. Uh, we have and, to know. And it's, and it's tricky. I think what you're looking for, you know, if you, if you look at a tree and you think it's an apple tree, but it's a pecan tree and you decide, I don't see apples. Therefore it's not really a tree or something like that. You can do the analogy of wrong times of see, you know, the wrong season uh, where it's not supposed to be bearing fruit, but you've judged the tree. So trying to even know, even if you could figure out what a true work was or a true pattern of works, you're really quite caught with your own fallen definition, your fallen evaluation of what that really means. And let's be honest, how many times, I mean, you and I are grieved all the time with pastors, sometimes friends of ours who we've known. We know their view of the gospel. We've looked at their ministry. They have served faithfully. And then we find out behind the scenes, there's drugs, there's prostitute. There's all kinds of weird stuff behind it for decades sometimes. And, and you look at that stuff and you go, boy, if you can't judge that kind of person, why are you so busy with just a regular person that's trying to stumble in the right direction on a day-to-day -day basis in Christ? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm so glad you mentioned trees, because that so many people say, uh, quoting Matthew uh, 7, uh, say, by your, their fruits you shall know them. So is Matthew saying, is Jesus saying in Matthew that we can look at someone's fruits or works, is what they're assuming that meaning to mean, and uh, judge whether they're a Christian or not? Uh, I don't take it that way. I, you know, the context is false prophets. 
So there, you know, there is a place where for certain things, there's discernment, just like qualifications of elders. There are some things that'll disqualify someone, but here it's talking about this wolf and sheep clothing, but you're going to tell something from their fruit. And it's a little unclear. Is this a doctrine of the person? But, but I think Charlie, what we also miss out on this passage is we're in wisdom literature. So not, not to get too complicated, but in this science of hermeneutics interpretation, what you and I know is that Proverbs are not promises that God guarantees satisfying. Proverbs are telling you, this is how things go. This, yeah. is, the, this is the way it goes. This yeah. is the general principle. So if uh, your ways please the Lord, he'll make even your enemies be at peace with you. I yeah. think that's true. Uh, it didn't work out for Jesus and Paul very well. But they would be exceptions. But the general principle is still there. I can admit to someone generally, I get it. If if a good tree produces good fruit, a you know a decent person produces some decent stuff. I it makes sense. But to move it in that def, that definition of guaranteed and proof and basis of judgment and basis of of really standing uh, over and against people about their works is not, I don't think at all what this scripture or any scripture is getting at. I think it's good to point out that he's talking about how to detect a false prophet and, and the test for a false prophet, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, was what they taught and whether it came true or not. In fact, Jesus seems to define fruits as what we, we teach and say. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, I might point that out in the book or some of the things that I've written. Um, so it's not a reliable uh, at all. It's evidence, but it's not proof. But Excellent. For, but the passage that, that you're more uh, conversant with is James, because you did a lot of work in James chapter two. And this is the passage that is always used. Faith without works is dead, meaning that if you don't have works, people would say you don't have faith in Christ. And you've written a book called Back to Faith which is really um, your dissertation, is it not, for yep. Phoenix Seminary, um, where you earned your doctorate. And uh, you start with the saying that we often hear that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, who said that? And uh, what, is your, what did you come out with as far as your conclusions about that saying? And you can bring in James two if you want to. Sure. Yeah, we don't. Of course, we're not going to go through it. But what is James? Right, right, saying? right. I'll, I'll, you know, give everybody a thing or thing, a thing or two to think about. So the phrase "we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone" may date back to um, Eclampadius. Uh, there's a phrase in Latin quoting him, but I couldn't track down that he really said it. It's somebody just said it, and didn't document it. It looks like it mostly goes back to Calvin. So Calvin and his later time made this statement and then Westminster Confession and everybody on every side, Billy Graham and uh, John Wesley, you know, all kinds of people have used it forever. So, so this, this saying dates back and it, and it came out, I think, of the Catholic accusation, the Roman Catholic battle with the Protestants, Calvin in particular, of, well, what about works? Well, what about works? And so what, what Calvin came up with was a formulation that said, well, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. It's kind of rhetorically cute, but it, it has a problem with it, kind of like Ben Franklin's gentleman. If we don't hang together, we'll certainly hang separately. So there's a 
little equivocation in the way the words are used. The hang doesn't mean hang and alone doesn't quite mean alone. And that's what he's trying to answer. If I could have advised Calvin now with 500 plus years of perspective, mm-hmm. I, I would have said, hey, John, they're, uh, they're tricking you. When they say, what about works? You should ask for the believer or the unbeliever. And then when they say for the unbeliever, you say, oh, no works, faith alone and Christ alone. And then they say for the believer and you say, oh, important. Have you not read Titus? We're to be a people zealous for good works. And if he had been able to divide the question properly, he could have had the right conversation. But, you know, who who am I? I mean, I've just got 500 years of a debate to get to enter into. James 2, this whole thing about faith without works is dead, you know. I like to also say faith without works is bad, just to make it clear. Everybody knows, I agree, this is a bad thing. You should always have works that go with your faith. The question in James is, is this a thing about getting into heaven, or is this a thing related to the fact that you're already in heaven? This is about a walk with God. Mm-hmm. And you point out well, and all of us you know, that spend time looking at James know that what there are 18 references to brothers, You know, it's always to believers. There are a lot of pieces that go in it, but here's the two things I'd say to people, to me, that are most striking. One, the analogy at the very end, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Picture James is giving us, it's really telling, because it means if you don't have a spirit connected to a body, that body's useless, you know, Mm -hmm. so it was alive, but then it's dead. So we're talking about two things. The other piece of that is just simply that you got to get the analogy straight. It's not that the spirit gives life to the body. You can tell that you have a spirit because you're moving your arms. It's Mm -hmm. actually, the analogy is the opposite, is it's paralleling uh, uh, works with uh, the spirit. So actually the animating thing is when we do work. So it's like when you act on your faith, it gives life to your faith, energizes it, brings it along, and you can act more and more life to the faith. The argument that I've found most effective in the whole book is the story of Abraham. So when he believed God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. We know from Genesis 15, probably the reference there. Right. But it's when he offered up Isaac when it proved it. Right. Right. So if you go back and study that length of proved time. Proved in quotes. Right. Right. Whatever that means. What do we mean by prove? But if people are saying, I, here's what I say. If you're saying that means it shows it proved he was saved then realize what you just said from when he believed to Ishmael concubines child growing up big enough to carry, you know, bar mitzvah age or 16 somewhere. It's, I think Calvin's right. It's about 25 years. So I tell people, I say, if you're going to take James to be talking about getting into heaven, would you at least give somebody 25 years before you judge them as unsafe? You know, (laughs) (laughs) but that's not what the passage is getting at it's getting at that there's this relationship between our works and our faith that when we have an unction of belief i I say it like this if god lays on you to take cookies over to a neighbor's house that's new in town or new in the neighborhood uh i'd say go do that there's a work you can do reach out friendship etc if you resist that then you're quenching squelching hurting damaging the relationship of how faith and works feed and grow and mature us in the lord so that we you're kind of a hearer only and not a doer your your faith is useless to that person that you would help 
and it's not profiting you in any way of making you mature or or as uh, i i believe james talks about saving you from uh being useless or maybe saving you from a negative judgment at the judgment seat of christ because that seems to be in the context there yeah both, both ends of that passage so um so abraham was justified by works and that's caused martin luther um apoplexy <laughs> yeah and he wanted to throw out that epistle of straw so just briefly what what do you think it means when james says abraham was justified by works well i'm, I'm comfortable with two things one he has something to boast you know before men not before god he talks about us going romans so um there's a justification like wisdom is justified by our children you know that there's something you can see so it demonstrated to people uh that he was the friend of god the way he trusted god and the way he believed god and the way he did what god said do offer your son god will provide the ram etc mm-hmm. uh, but also in the growth of that word you know uh, james is a pretty early epistle and i'm pretty confident that the nature of that word that we translate for righteousness is kind of an it it has some fluidity to it and i think i personally think what james is up to is that there's a growth growing in righteousness aspect to that that is part of a maturation conversation mm-hmm. uh but we we've we've theologized theologized that word I mean justified always means this one thing wherever you see it rather than appreciate the nuance of of you know what the growth of that word is so i i can see both of those in play there very comfortable with them that it can be about growth or it can be about demonstrating before others um, his friendship with god yeah well the scripture says in verse 22 of james 2 that his faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect perfect so brought to maturity brought to completion brought to its its purpose and i also like verse 24 where he says that um a man is justified he says uh, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only now that little phrase not by faith only indicates that there is another kind of justification so there's one before men and then right. one before god exactly um, excellent so that that's pretty much the the main point of your your book was working through james uh chiefly well it was especially james so that was a central piece of the argument but it was more about just the whole nature of that cliche and then all the other passages people tend to use and so i'm trying to show the major passages that you claim don't prove it so you add on more minor passages and they don't prove it either and what we need i think what we need more than anything is a clear understanding that there is a distinction between salvation, justification, regeneration, adoption, that piece, and sanctification, abiding, growth, uh, fall in the spirit, walk in the spirit. And when you can understand that distinction, you're in a new place. And, and the thing that underscores it is before Christ, right, in our lostness, uh, we are described as a certain person, like an Adam. And then afterwards, we're a new creation. Well, that means you're dealing with two different people. And so the rules of the game, I think, are different for two different people. So prior to salvation, our works had nothing to do with it. It's faith alone. Post-salvation, it's our faith 
And then as we have responsibility in action, growing our faith and our action related to reward, related to pleasing our newfound father, honoring him, walking in love, et cetera. Right. Good. Well, um, you know, another question that uh, you, you as a pastor and I as a pastor have often received, or just not even as a pastor, but often received from people is, uh, you know, um, I call it the Uncle Joe question. So <laughs> my, my my Uncle Joe uh, says he became a Christian when he was 12 years old. He was baptized and he was a deacon in the church. Maybe he even preached for a while, but now now he doesn't want to have anything to do with religion. Uh, he say, he doesn't go to church. Uh not necessarily a real bad guy, or maybe he is a real bad guy, but I don't know if he's saved or not. How do you answer people who come with that kind of question to you? Well, I would agree with them. I don't know. It's not really my job. What I do know is that when we trust in Christ, our sins, past, present, future, the whole gamut, the whole thing was dealt with in Christ. They're all future to him, as we like to say. And, and as a result, God's forgiving our future rebellion, our future uh, uh, passivity, our future whatever it is. And so what I say, could Joe be saved? And I say, of course he can. Um, is Joe going to have consequences in this life, the one to come by not walking with God? I think so. And we could talk about that. But, but most of the time, what I do more than anything is say, you know, our real responsibility is make sure we're solid in the Lord. We believed and that we're walking with him. And uh, Joe, love on him and hope for the best. But um, God is going to hold us each accountable for our own personal lives, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And I always offer the suggestion that you know it's possible he may not be saved <laughs> he could have been brought Amen. Up, brought up in a church culture so i really don't know unless i talk to him and even then i don't know it's only he knows and god knows in my opinion and right. we can only have an educated guess um but you know paul did address the readers of his epistles as believers and brethren so he had uh, a reasonable uh, educated guess that they had truly believed um, yeah, he says that of Yodi and Syntyche, who are not behaving very well there in Philippians. Yeah. And yet he says, you know, they're elect. We laid together in gospel that, you know, he he assigns to them that they are absolute believers. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Believers can behave badly. Um, but I guess the point of our conversation is that believers can and should do good works, but works have nothing to do with. Uh, our eternal salvation or gaining our, our eternal salvation. It's getting the cart before the horse to talk about works. And yet there's so many religious groups that do that. Well, well and also let, let me just throw in it. If works can't save us, why then will we start pretending again, a game that they like unsave us or prove that they weren't saved? They're just not part of that conversation. It's faith alone and Christ alone. And uh, I, I think that's where we gum it up that we suddenly give them a different kind of conversation post-salvation that they didn't have prior. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, uh, Fred, I, it's been a good discussion. I appreciate your time and your insights. You've made some good uh, analogies for us and some things to think about. And uh, again, your book is Back to Faith. That's one of your books. That's really your doctoral dissertation, which is very complete and thorough. 
and discusses James too. Uh, you've also written another book called Preaching on Your Feet, which um, uh, I'm getting older though, so I may I may do more preaching sitting down these days. <laughs> I got <laughs> it. The premise of that book is uh, well. You know that when you write out your sermon uh, days before, that's what I call preaching on your seat, and you're still a different person by Sunday. And so, you, when you look at the history of Christianity and uh, some of the great preaching out there, what you're wanting to do is get the message into your heart and simplify it enough in your mind to where you're opening the text, letting it be the outline, and then preaching as the Spirit leads um, uh, from the heart to the heart. That's yeah. what preaching on your feet's about. It's a very good book, and I heard uh, one preacher told me not long ago that it really revolutionized the way he he preaches. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. I just thought I'd pass that on to you. Yeah. So we so I've got a um a book coming out uh, shortly on homeschooling called the Independent Homeschool. People can look for that, and I think I throw a little grace in there from time to time. I hope, but uh, uh, how to think about that? They also could get the chapter on james for free i have it as a pdf available at backtofaith.com so if they wanted to read that particular section we talked about they can get a free copy there okay good and you're working on a commentary also on james i am and uh and a different book on the same subject more toned down one you know the other one's 300 pages 600 footnotes so uh, this one's gonna i think be called the puzzle of faith and works i'm going to try to show how these pieces fit and don't fit and how to uh, really put the puzzle together. Well, not that your other book isn't uh, worthwhile reading it, but there might be some people who would thank you for a shorter version. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, why I, I've, I've heard that a lot. <laughs> I put out a shorter version of my dissertation just as a short summary of the Lordship Salvation discussion. I got you. Well, friend, thank you very much for showing up and, um, and sharing your thoughts with us today on uh, grace and works. And it's always great. Keep up the good work. Well, as it were. Thank you, Fred. We appreciate you. And um, until we see you again. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.